BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are coming uh, right up on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's tomorrow. Uh, Kate and I are recording this episode uh, noon, uh, just a few minutes after noon on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Wednesdays are our, our normal schedule. So uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of things, uh, but but before before we get to that, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, I want to say thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Thank you so much. And and I know not all of you, but I think, you know, the great majority of you also are readers of the website that publishes this podcast, Talking Points Memo, TPM. You probably found out about the podcast through TPM, and many of you are members. So uh, thanks for being a listener to the podcast. Thanks for reading TPM if you're a reader. Thanks even more for being a member if you're a member. Those things are all awesome, and they make what we do possible and, uh, you know, a virtuous cycle. It allows us to do what we like doing, which provides, you know, kind of brings the news to you in in the, I hope, special way that that we do it. So we're going to talk about uh, a number of things in a moment. Um, you know, one is we're kind of in this, we're in this funny kind of limbo period right now, we hope, between the infrastructure bill which passed, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now and was signed uh, by President Biden a week or so ago, something like that. And what we hope, uh, the Build Back Better, um, which I think everybody figures is on the way to passage, but, you know, kind of no one wants to figure too confidently given everything that's happened over the last six months. And so we're going to check in on, on what's going on there. I want to, you know, on a totally different topic, and this is just kind of point of personal privilege, I have been thinking about uh, getting involved in a history project. And so if you're a listener to this podcast, I just want to, I'm kind of putting out a call for your ideas because, you know, I, my background is in history, as, as probably most of you know. Um, I was training to be a professor and, and uh, then I got, you know, then I shifted gears and, and got into doing this. Uh, but that's my professional background. But even after I left that professional background, everything I read is still history and, and generally things that are like in the distant past and stuff like that. I'm never things that are history of contemporary America or even what to most of you probably seem like the distant past in America. That's too close either to my day job or what I did, 
you know, in my previous professional life. So I like things very in, in, in the deep past and other countries and stuff like that. And I, I think there's there is a there's a lot of people who are into popular history. You know, not the narrow academic studies, but just good history you can pick up and, and learn things. And uh, I've been sort of plotting and brainstorming about uh, an enterprise that can kind of bring some of that together in, in a way beyond, you know, obviously you go to the bookstore, you go on Amazon, you find a new book, or maybe you check out a documentary. So if you're if you're into popular history, let me know. Send me, send me an email through the normal TPM channel and uh, let me know what you're into, uh, you know, how you find out, how you find good history books to read. Um, how your interest gets channeled, you know, books, documentaries, stuff like that. I'm just interested in if you're into history, into popular history, uh, what are you into? You know, what really uh, gets you going on a particular topic and stuff like that. So, uh, so we did. So, okay. So uh, we did our, we did our, our, our thanks to, to all of you. And I did my little pitch for my, my little side idea. Uh, and, and so now, you know, let me, let me, uh, I'm about to introduce my, my co-host, Kate, Kate Riga. Um, before I do that, and before we get into reconciliation, let me remind you, while you're packing your bags, packing up the kids, packing your bags, I wasn't reading the copy closely enough. While you're packing up the kids, dogs, and sweaters for your annual visit to your in-laws, don't forget to pack a Grady's cold brew kit because without proper planning, drinking a single sip from your other-in-law's moldy coffee pot will be even harder on your stomach than watching OANN over family dinner. Luckily, the Grady's cold brew kit makes it easy easy to drink delicious coffee on the go. Just toss in some bean bags, add water, stick the pouch in the fridge overnight, and you'll have smooth, flavorful coffee all week long. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And because I didn't mention it at, at, at the front, remember, Grady'sColdBrew.com is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. So, uh, Kate Rigo, what is We've been, we have been, uh, you know, had these high profile trials last few days. Everybody's kind of clearing out for Thanksgiving. We haven't heard a lot over the last few, you know, days or week or so on, on like, is this reconciliation thing happened yet? You know, is it happening? Uh, has Joe Manchin confirmed his new set of complaints and new kind of dramas he's going to talk about? What's, what's the status? Well, we don't really know anything about that. Um, you know, people are still home for the break. So there hasn't been a ton of progress on reconciliation. However, we do have two small updates on proposals uh, within the package. One of which is that yesterday, uh, the Senate parliamentarian met with some Democratic staffers about the immigration proposal that's in the House version of the reconciliation bill. And it, it wasn't a super conclusive meeting. I think Democrats came out of it saying that they felt positive because she basically didn't take it off the table. She basically advanced the proposal to the next step, the the official scrub where they go through and see what jives with the bird rule and what doesn't. Um, but Democrats are optimistic about that. Remember, this is their third attempt to get some kind of immigration reform proposal into the package. Um this one in particular uh, would allow millions of undocumented immigrants to apply for work permits, permission to travel, um, and to get, you know, kind of temporary protection from deportation. So that's a small update on that. 
Um, so, it, so, and just just to be clear, so this isn't like you know what we've been talking about for the last decade is this you know kind of dreamers path to citizen. Well, a dreamers, and then B path to citizenship for people here. So this isn't quite that, but this sort of for lack of a better word, lets them kind of come out of the shadows and and kind of be regularized, even though they're not on a path to citizenship, they get a work permit, stuff like that. Right. So the the first proposal Democrats tried was an actual pathway to citizenship for about 8 million undocumented immigrants. The, the parliamentarian put the kibosh on that. And then their second attempt was to uh, change the date in this registry law to basically let more undocumented immigrants apply for green cards. And she killed that, too. So this is kind of the scaled down final attempt that they're, you know, they're trying to get something in. So so this is where they've landed. And is the basic idea that they need, I mean, generally in the reconciliation system, only, things are only allowed in there that have clear budgetary impact. So is the idea here that, well, we're given a bunch of work permits, uh, workers have payroll taxes and, and and something like that is where you get to budgetary impact, or at least right. that's the argument. Right. Yeah. And then, I mean, and the problem with some of the other proposals per the parliamentarian is, you know, she said at, at one point that it was a kind of a, a sweeping policy change, uh, not a, a budgetary thing, which was like her reason for rejecting it. Um, so I think, you know, they're trying to, to split hairs here to, to get squeak something through. Right. Right. Okay. So, the, and they said, so there's another thing. What's the, what's yeah. the second? So the other break? thing is about, uh, this comes from the joint committee on taxation, uh, that found that the, it was basically this huge revision, uh, that the build back better plan will actually raise taxes for millionaires instead of lower their lowering their taxes as the joint committee on taxation found before. Okay. Um, so, you know, and that, that's a, that's a big deal because what Democrats, all Democrats except for, you know, cinema really wanted to market this bill as is like, we're doing all this good stuff for kind of, you know, quote unquote, normal people. And the really rich are going to pay for it because that is a, a very popular message. And then that kind of got shot in the foot when cinema was suddenly like, no, we can't raise taxes on the rich or corporations. But having this data point helps them say, you know, the only people for whom taxes are going to go up are are millionaires or the uber wealthy. Um, and it's funny, it's just, it's interesting, because even though it's a different entity, this kind of comes on the heels of what we talked a little bit about last episode, how the Bureau on Labor Statistics had been really uh, undershooting the the job growth in a way that's, you know, both of these things are kind of like, those were bummers for the Biden administration, right? You know, those were bad headlines. And right. now it's just kind of like, oh, that was wrong. Our bad. You know, and I'm not I'm not trying. I'm really not trying to hit at some conspiracy thing. It's just like right in a row, two things that were mistakes that right, they had to right. kind of dance now, around. Is, is, does that we don't have to get too much into the detail, but does that come down to what's uh, at least my recollection is what cinema did agree to are these like uh alternative minimums. So like not increasing rates, but these kind of uh, rules where, you know, if, you, if you're a corporation and you're, you know, you know make, making tons of money and you found some clever way to like not pay any taxes, well, there's a minimum. You got to pay some taxes, stuff like that. Is that how kind of the, the increases come in? I'm not sure exactly because it's, it's taking the bill as a whole. So yeah, that's definitely right. a piece of it. But um, got it. Not got sure it. where the got main it. driver is. And do, and what is the? 
I understand that everybody has sort of like, you know, gone to the four winds and everything. But I'll t- I, tell you, I, I saw um, a, a member of Congress uh, on, you know, on TV yesterday or something like that, or saw a clip. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're feeling optimistic. We ha- we're going to get this done by the end of the year. And I was like, what? Like, I... <laughs> I mean, okay, it's better than it's better than not getting it done by the end of the year. But but you know, where where are we going here? Is the general sense that like with the with with some amount of mansioning that 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 this is moving forward, or is there you know not hearing anything makes me a little nervous? Yeah, I think the general sense I've gotten from people is that it's moving forward. The speed at which it's moving forward is still very much under debate. You know, a lot of reporters were asking timeline questions before they left. Um, You know, can you get this done by Christmas is a question that doesn't seem to be fully kind of shored up at this point. And a a big part of that is not just reconciliation. It's just that they've left all the other stuff they have to do until the final weeks in which they can do it. So, you know, when they get back, it's going to be funding the government, doing the debt ceiling, uh, doing the, the defense authorization bill, and also reconciliation, kind of all at the right. same time. So right, right, right. Okay. So, but it, but at least the general sense is that it's going to happen. Just you know, it may be towards the end of December, or you know, God forbid, even even in in into into January. But we think we think at the end of the day, Mansion is going to be on board. Yeah, I mean, I think that is what's being projected, and most people are also just kind of sharing this you know, why would he let it get to this point if he was going to kill it? (laughs) It's just almost unusually cruel. And, and, and I assume that this is, and I'm not trying to bum anybody out or, or, you know, kind of discourage the people who are, who are still fighting for this, but is it right that the general assumption is that pay leave is going to be stripped out as one of his conditions? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so uh, the other thing I guess we want to talk about are these these trials, which have really dominated uh, dominated the, the the news conversation in the last uh, couple weeks. So we have these two cases: uh, the one that is concluded, Kyle Rittenhouse uh, up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, acquitted of all charges, and then we have a second case that just went to the jury, I believe, yesterday. Um, Ahmad. Arbery. Uh, this is down in Georgia, rural part of Georgia. They're obviously very different cases, but they, for also understandable reasons, have been sort of, you know, combined together in 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 the public mind. And on the Rittenhouse case, which which has has had more publicity, I think largely because Rittenhouse became like a folk hero for the far right. Um, that verdict, a lot of people were very upset about the verdict. I was upset about the verdict. But if you look at the verdict on the law, on the laws actually on the books, the verdict was not that crazy. I think it's possible it was even the right verdict as the law in Wisconsin is written. I want to emphasize that. Now, the outcome of the trial, I think it's totally outrageous. But again, juries, you know, you get into nullification and stuff like that. Um, but juries need, need to look at the law. And what what struck me there is, you know, this guy is a, a thug and a punk, Rittenhouse. I mean, 
you're going into a a very chaotic situation with an AR-15. I mean, frankly, since the beginning of this, maybe not legally, but morally, the person who I kind of blame for this is the guy's mom. He's 17 years old. She drove him to Wisconsin with his AR-15 to participate in this. That's crazy, right? In any case, I really think that is, rather than being upset about the particular verdict, this this is really a consequence of three things going on in our society. And they're particularly bad in Wisconsin, but certainly not only Wisconsin. One is, if you have self-defense laws that are very permissive and very focused on the subjective state of mind of the person with the gun. Now, in some cases, the actual statutes aren't that bad, but they've been interpreted in ways that make them bad. In other cases, you've got sort of stay in your ground laws, which are just terrible. In most cases, self-defense laws are supposed to be, it's not just what you were feeling. Your feeling has to be rational at some level. You know, anybody can be scared. You, my life can't depend on, on, on weird things that might scare you. It has to be rational. But these laws are very permissive. There's actually, you know, there's one point, the third guy that Rittenhouse shot, the one who didn't die, there's a point where the guy he shot comes up and he has a gun too. He thinks Rittenhouse is a mass shooter. He's trying to disarm him or shoot him or something. So they both come up and they're pointing their guns at each other. And the guy who was shot basically hesitates at that moment. He, he can't, he hesitates. You know, it's hard to kill someone. But the point is, is that under the available law, both of them, whoever shot first was solid on self-defense. Now, that's not a good, that's not a good situation for us to be in. You know, basically a shootout and whoever gets off the first round is good to go. The other thing is, when you have this culture of open carry in this country, guns are dangerous. They invite tension. And one of, you know, one of the really interesting things in, in Rittenhouse's sort of description of what happened, and I believe this is the first guy he shot, he says the guy's coming after him. And again, in a narrow sense, that was true. And he was afraid. Well, the guy wasn't armed. What was he afraid of? He was afraid he would, he would take his gun. He was afraid he would take Rittenhouse's gun and shoot Rittenhouse with it. Well, Rittenhouse didn't have to bring a gun in the first place. So, and this isn't, this isn't justifying Rittenhouse. Again, this guy's a, a punk and he killed two people and now he's being treated as a hero. But again, you bring firearms, ra- you know, um, rapid fire firearms into a dangerous, chaotic situation that invites chaos. And the combination of everybody open carrying and permissive self-defense laws where you can just feel scared and maybe you should be scared because you've created a dangerous situation. That's a functioning society can't operate that way. And so it's like a failure of policy, not just that this one guy got away with killing a couple people, which he did. And then the last thing is, you know, we are in, we live in a very polarized very divided society. And certain people's lives and certain people's internal experience matters a lot more than other people's. Now, some people will say, well, okay, 
you're basically talking about race. White people count more than black people. And that is definitely the case, the overriding case in, in many of these cases. But it's not only that. There were no, there were no African-Americans involved in the whole Rittenhouse. The four people, they were all white. But certain people are going to sympathize with C. Rittenhouse. He's like, oh, that could be me, right? And, and when you're talking about it being able to, being okay to kill people because you feel danger, you know, you feel scared in the moment. When it's so subjective, the fact that different people will identify with different kind of people matters too much. It's always to, to an extent with a jury, you know, who are you? Is a person like you? Can you empathize with them? Stuff like that. But again, when justifiable homicide versus murder is so subjective, all of those things come together. A society can't work that way. And in the Rittenhouse case, one thing that didn't get a lot of attention, there's one law that he clearly, clearly violated. A minor cannot carry a gun around in an, you know, in, 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 in Wisconsin. They can't open carry. He was 17 years old. The judge threw that one out on like a technicality because of the measurements of the gun. So basically, he made new law. Now minors can just get like a long gun and just go out and be, you know, come by a tense situation to help. These, these things are not, um, these are not, these are not rules that a society can operate by. Yeah, I mean, I've I've read a, quite a bit about what you said about how kind of Wisconsin's very permissive gun laws um, play such a big role here. And I think it's definitely true. But I also very, very much understand the anger of people who are like, yeah, OK, well, if a black man went hunting at the protests like this, this wouldn't be the end result. You know, I totally yeah, get that. And ab absolutely. Absolutely. And there is also the part where the judge's behavior in this case was questionable at best. And I think some things he did uh, maybe got, maybe enraged people a bit without necessary context. Like at one point he said um, he didn't let them call the the people who were shot by Rittenhouse victims and people got really upset about that. And then it turns out that's that's what he normally does in his in his courtroom, plus I mean, that makes sense, right? The whole case is about whether or not, you know, those people they were, were Rittenhouse's victims. Or yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, that makes sense. But there was other stuff that was just questionable at best, you know, like letting Rittenhouse draw slips of who was going to be on his final jury. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that's like, it's just stupid because it's not like he's going, you know, he's pulling out pieces of paper. It's not like he's going to be able to rig it. But it's just why, why do that in the first place? Why even create, you know, a shadow of a doubt for people that you're siding with one of the people? And the weird thing of, you know, he made everyone like clap for the one witness who was a veteran and all that. It's just, you know, those kind of antics when you've got a case like this that, People have been killed. You know, that people were mowed down before their natural death. And around that, you've got, you know, just the, the through lines of everything that makes people emotional. You know, there are race elements. There is 
kind of there's uh, political elements. You've got all this stuff in one place and you've got a judge who's going to conduct himself like that. I That's inexcusable to me. I think there's two things there. One is that when you see, you know, the local judiciary is not always up to national standards. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's an elected judge and judges are elected in all, you know, all sorts of the, you know, lots of parts of the country. Judges are um, elected instead of appointed. And so some of that is just, you know, trial judges at the local level. It's not always great. And but the other thing, I don't think there's any question. He was very sympathetic to the defense and very antagonistic to the prosecution. And th- there were a couple things I, when I read expert commentary on the case as it was happening and, and after it happened, the prosecution made some big errors. That's true. I mean, big errors, almost to the point of like, like, you, you know, the kind of just, just textbook goofs. I don't mean like bad strategy, just like, you know, letting evidence in when there was no need to let it in, stuff, stuff like that. But, and, and so, and he, got on the prosecution's case a few times, but he was clearly very sympathetic. And and he was, he did not seem to be making any effort in the context of, this isn't just a case in my courtroom in in this one county in, in Wisconsin. This is everybody in the country is watching this, everybody in the world. I need to really make sure that I don't just conduct a fair trial, but that I appear to conduct a fair trial and not give people reason to think that it's, you know, that the the stack is, uh, the deck is stacked. Yeah, he wasn't great. Um, but again, I, I, I really do feel like, you know, you, no other country that is not in kind of like, you know, borderline civil war insurgency lets people use guns this way. Yeah. And one, one other thing that again, hasn't, hasn't gotten a lot of attention is that the original reporting mentioned this, but the local police, as this was all happening, um, you know, in the moments before this happened, in that evening, they were videoed saying to this group of gun guys that Rittenhouse was part of, like, hey, good work, you know, throwing them some bottles of water, keep hydrated. The police also have a lot of responsibility for this. They should not have allowed, I mean, look, You've got, a, again, a very tense situation. You've got protesters who are angry. They see what they know rightly are some like, you know, right-wing yahoos there with their AR-15s. You got to keep those people apart. It, you know, that is a very explosive, dangerous situation. And we see what happens. So there's, a, there's like a, a lot of fault to go around here on the part of people who are not 17 years old. And again, not trying to justify him. I mean, you know, 17, 18, it's not that big a difference, but still there's, there's, you can't run a society this way. And now we're kind of, you know, we're having the fallout from it. Like you mentioned, he's become this folk hero, the most kind of extreme elements of house Republicans are all competing with each other to get him as their Hill intern. And, I guess that kind of stuff shouldn't be surprising to us anymore. You know, we we lived through the Trump administration, but I have to say it's kind of struck me in a way that 
other things haven't just this extension of this conservative kind of like fuck your feelings culture has now diverged into this he killed people i mean that's not in doubt he killed two people and we have members of Congress competing on Fox News and Newsmax, challenging each other to physical feats to see who gets the honor of having him in their office. I mean, it's just and it's not like he did anything else that would give him this kind of hero status. He brought a machine gun to a protest, clearly ready to kill people if it came to that. And he's a hero for some elected officials and, you know, the myriad people who support him. It just we've gotten from, you know, kind of making fun of kids on college campuses for trying to be mindful of other people's especially marginalized people's lived experiences. You know, we kind of went from that liberal tier snowflake stuff to just this. And it wasn't a surprise that after he was acquitted, the immediate thing that happens is the valorization of this kid who did nothing but put himself in a situation with a gun where he knew that hurting or killing people was on the table. It's we've just it's just a dangerous place. Well, that we're an, in. another another way to look at that, like, let's let's agree for the sake of conversation that he was legally not guilty just again to frame to frame what we're going to discuss he may not be guilty but that doesn't mean like he kicks ass or he did a great thing you know you can say look a, ter- a, a terrible confluence of events blah 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 maybe under the law he's not guilty of a crime blah 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 blah, blah. but the two people who are dead they came to a protest they were not armed there's, there's nothing in either of their histories that suggests they were, you know, violent, they would hurt anybody. Um, you know, you can set aside like, you know, Rittenhouse didn't, maybe didn't know that, maybe, you know, say he was maybe thinking he was in danger. But the point is, you got two people who showed up, they didn't have any weapons, no evidence at all, they were there to hurt anybody or in the process of hurting anybody, and they're both dead. I mean... That's terrible. And so you can be legally not guilty, but that should live on your conscience forever. Because again, in the spur of the moment, maybe he didn't, you know, again, just framing that aside, uh, maybe he thought he was in danger, but they were not endangering him. In fact, they were not. And now they're dead and there's no consequence for their death. And, you know, the irony is that the third guy he shot, who I think he was like shot in the bicep or something, he lived in, you know, relatively, you know, relatively minor injury as for, you know, as gunshots go. He was armed. He had a gun and he was pointing it at Rittenhouse when this happened. Now, I'm not saying his his shooting him was more, you know, more justified or, 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 or whatever. He was there as a medic and he thought he was stopping a mass shooting. But again, those first two people, I mean, imagine being, being, that's your husband or your boyfriend or your son, your brother. They go to a protest. They're not armed and now they're dead. And, and not only is there no punishment or accountability, but the, the person who killed your loved one is, is, is like a hero. That's, that's just astonishing. Because again, you know, 
in, in that case, if that person were someone special to me, I would say like, why the fuck did you bring an AR-15? Like why? Like all the chaos stuff, like great. But what, what were you trying to do? What were you trying to accomplish by bringing that kind of weapon, that kind of escalating thing in, into the equation? It's just horrible. It's just horrible. And it's so much about what the right wing is now is predicated on a complete lack of compassion for other people. You know, this is the other thing that I've been thinking a lot about. It's, you know, you can't, you have to see immigrants as criminals and rapists. And there isn't room in that depiction to also think of desperation or poverty or the the plain human suffering of the situation. And Democrats are not your political enemies or just your political opponents. They're enemies. They're pedophiles. They're Satanists. They're, you know, and that is how everything is oriented when you have a right wing that's primary identifier is tribalism and is that everyone who is not with us is against us and is a threat. And it's just put us in this place where, you know, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and Madison Cawthorn and Paul Gosar are going on TV and like yucking it up with Seb Gorka about getting this kid to work in their office whose claim to fame is killing innocent people. I mean, that's where we are. And I think that's why, and you know, maybe this is a good segue to the other thing we wanted to talk about. You know, there have been these flurry, this flurry of pieces about people's liberals despair about, you know, the American political system as this pendulum, as always happens. You know, you it goes to one party, people get sick of that party, send it back to the other party. But the the option on the right now is getting so scary so fast and is really oriented itself now that this element that always existed has just bled so cleanly into the mainstream that we're now at this we're now at this point where you know the written house acquittal sparks joy and celebration and holding up this kid as a hero for slaying people and I think that's why people feel such deep despair when we talk about stuff like inflation or congressional gridlock and all this other stuff that is going to make it hard for Democrats to retain power because Republicans only need to take back over once to have these kind of this element of the party have tremendous amounts of power. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely, and I and I and I do think that is, you know, you 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 you've hit on a basic point that, um, you know, I I did a post a couple of days ago where I just kind of ran back through my memory, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, all but one of those presidents lost control of Congress in in, in um, or lost complete control of Congress uh, in their first midterm election. And the exception is is George W. Bush, and that was basically because nine eleven, right? The way that nine eleven just kind of upended our politics. So it's almost expected, right? And and and, but as you say, all the stakes seem much much higher uh, for a million different reasons. Um, and uh, 
you know, it's hard to have a democratic system when when the stakes seem that high, when it's not just kind of, you know, the ordinary oscillation of power between the governing parties and stuff like that. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, when we talk about, I don't want to make it like it's a both sides thing, because only one side here is like having insurrections when they lose elections, right? Um, but you can see how these things catalyze and reinforce each other. They already did one insurrection. The consequences of letting of them getting back into power are quite high because they don't seem to recognize the legitimacy of of if you lose the election, you gotta you gotta step aside. Um, so yeah, that's really that's that's really uh, shaping everybody's everybody's reactions and and you know perceptions of of our politics right now. So uh, let's we got got a couple questions. We'll finish yep. up on the questions for before everybody departs for the big holiday. Um, so one from Daryl, who says, you know, he he takes our point about it being difficult to kind of apply the screws to Mansion in any meaningful way. But he says, why don't they t- basically turn the pressure up in places like Texas, Florida, and Louisiana to harp on climate change, health risks from COVID infrastructure needs, just to raise the temperature there for those senators. I'm under no illusion that it'd be easy to change their votes, but surely it's worth something to just move the center of the debate. I think I think the politics of those states has has told us what what the people in those states think. You know, I. I over time, political activism is about changing people's minds. But, um, you know, how hard will would Republicans have to work to change the body politic in New York and California about abortion? I mean, good luck, right? I mean, unfortunately, those states, I think, have been pretty clear about general lack of interest or concern with climate change uh they've there's some exceptions on 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 covid but i mean this isn't this isn't a matter of that that democrats aren't making the case they're the states that that uh you mentioned are they have a different take i think we've also reached a point where polarization is such that who the speaker is is more important than the message. So, I mean, if the Democratic president or Democratic congressional leaders were to go to this place, people who might be swayed if they, you know, kind of took the time to listen to the message are not even going to listen to the message because they're going to see who's saying it and be like, well, enemy, other side, right? They're just looking to bring our guys down. So, I mean, I just also don't see there being much of a... I also think that, that, you know, in the question it mentions infrastructure, I do think you go to some of these states and say, hey, we're here at this bridge. It's falling down. Uh, you know, this bill repairs the bridge. Or you, you know, go and say, "Hey, uh, you know, child, you know, universal free uh, pre K and and exp- you know, th- there are things that that I think you can move the dial, particularly things like you know, bread and butter things like fixing the roads and stuff like that. That's something that has broad enough buy-in and support that it can start to break through the polarization. Um, you, you know, you can kind of see that in the, in the justifications that a lot of Republican members of the House gave about voting against the infrastructure bill. They just kind of pivoted to like, oh, whatever, but, I, but the Build Back Better is bad, so 
I'm opposing this bill because of that other, but they couldn't really justify it. But I think things like, again, things like COVID and things like climate, those are just, those are not movable issues that anybody kind of showing up and 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 making an argument is going to change. I always just come back to this idea that oftentimes we see pretty progressive proposals or ideas pass in red states as ballot measures, you know, when they're on the ballot without a a D or an R next to it. It's just, here's the idea. What do you think of it? And it leaves all these really surprising results. Um, yep. And I think this is a case where, again, if there was some way to get to get an, a messenger-less content to people, it, maybe it would matter. But the mouthpiece is trumps all of that right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and as just to make the point, so many of these cases, these, these ballot amendments pass and then the state legislature overrules yep. them. <laughs> good point. That's good so, point. you know, what are you going to do? And then this question from Wint, to what extent do you believe Democrats will use January 6th and surrounding events as part of their midterm campaign messaging and advertising? He says he knows they're excited to tout their legislative wins, um, but 140 plus members of the other party voting to overturn an election after the Capitol was ransacked and people died seems like a good thing to prioritize when warning against a GOP House takeover. I think it'll be a significant part of the equation. There's a lot of sort of uh, above it all editorial opinion and conventional wisdom in Washington. Like, oh, that's, you know... One of the things that came out of the elect, you know, the uh, gubernatorial elections in Virginia, New Jersey. Oh, you're still hung up on Trump. You can't make it about Trump. You got to make it about, you know, what's happening now. Well, yes and no. I, I was I was reading something yesterday, and I noticed like, wow, Jimmy Carter's 97 years old. That's amazing. You know, good for Jimmy Carter, right? Um, still, still, still going strong. I certainly remember. Republicans ran against Jimmy Carter for about 15 years after he after he was defeated, right? You run against people forever. I think the thing with 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 the with the insurrection is that I don't think anybody and I certainly wouldn't agree with it to say that's the only thing you run on. You got to run on on kind of everything and the key is you need a unify you need a message that holds it all together. And so I, and I think that means both. You say, "Hey, these are the things we did. The other guys voted, you know, tried to stop all these good things we did. And what they're focused on is the insurrection. They're crazy. And you always hear a lot of stuff from, again, the sort of the DC conventional wisdom and newspaper editorialist type, like, you know, it's, it's, you gotta, what's, you gotta make an affirmative case, but not really. A huge amount of politics is about fear. I mean, all of Republican politics is about fear. That's the entire thing. It's about the woke mob and about the immigrants. And I mean, it's entirely about fear. But the thing is, uh, in, in this particular case, in 2022 and 2024, what is the real unifying thing for Democrats? You know, some people are into roads and bridges. Some people are into social democratic stuff, you know, universal pre-K and expanding Medic Medicaid and uh, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of both. What's the unifying thing? A lot of people are really, really scared about what Trump represents across the board. Armed violence to not accept the results of elections. A climate of aggression and predation 
against women, dehumanizing and degrading immigrants and everybody who's not a conservative Christian white person. It's okay to campaign on how bad it would be for Trump to come back into power. And it is a very unifying message. There are all sorts of people who don't want that to happen again. So I think the thing is you need to, but you need a message that isn't just, oh, we got two things. We got the, the, the legislation and we also got Trump is terrible. These are, these are <laughs> deeply un, uh, interrelated. So you need a message that combines both. And I do think it'll, it'll, it, will, it will be a significant part of the message as it should be. The question is how much you kind of, again, make it a, a, a unified storyline, for lack of a better word. This is something I've been worried about, particularly after Virginia, where you're right, all the instant reactions from kind of the the usual pundits was, you can't make it all about Trump. Democrats are only talking about Trump. And I just thought that was so nuts. Like this idea that if Democrats just talk about bread and butter issues and kind of ignore the specter of violent on the right, they'll be fine. Because first of all, I can't imagine anything more out of touch with our current day and age. And also, it just seems so stupid to me to pretend like Trump doesn't exist or that he's not a looming threat, where I think, as you say, fear is a powerful weapon in politics and Democrats should use it not to be manipulative, but because most Democrats are really scared and did feel like the 2020 election was an existential threat, that if Trump had won... It's not just, you know, Republicans in the White House, it's democracy will continue to fray. So I think you're totally right. And I don't see that as a particularly hard case to make, to be like, we've got this extremist and the other party, they're dangerous, they're violent. What I want to do is get into office and give you universal pre-K and fix your bridges and make things a little easier on you. I mean, those two things seem, you know, very connected to me and an easy pitch, an easier pitch to make than people have framed it up to be. I think that's absolutely right. And again, I think there is a, in sort of, you know, high-minded newspaper editorialist culture, there is this knee-jerk reaction like, oh, you're just talking scare tactics and fear. That must mean you don't have any positive arguments to make. You know, you must be out of ideas. Because you're just, you know, you're using the crutch of, of hating Trump. Well, that's, that's a stupid logic. A lot of what we're doing in politics is to keep ourselves safe, to keep people we care about safe, to keep our Republican system of government functioning, running on fear of the people who are going to make us unsafe. That doesn't mean you're out of ideas. That's, that's like the most important idea. You know, it's it's like I want universal pre-K, but I also don't want I I I I don't want uh, the sort of the the horror of the, of the Trump presidency. So I think we know, we all need to resist the idea that running on the fear of bad things happening is somehow kind of like is cheap or lazy or shows you're out of ideas. I mean, keeping. Keeping everybody safe, protecting ourselves, that's not a cheap idea. That's not lazy. That's about as important as it gets. Right. Okay. So, 
I guess, I guess that's it. I guess that's, 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 that's all we got. I want to, I want to remind, I want to thank you again for being a listener to this podcast and a reader of our site that publishes the podcast. And if you're a member, especially thank you. And if you're not, you know, it's Thanksgiving. You should be thankful for TPM. So become a member if you're a listener or or if if you are a reader. And uh, but seriously, thank you so much from from all of us. And remember that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. And uh, if you order, you can get twenty five percent off with the promo code TPM. Well, have a good Thanksgiving, everybody. All right, later, people. Bye. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 